There's two more. So, 
neither will your father who did your trespasses. I'll stop there. This passage recalls the Lord's Prayer is contained in that what we read there. And that's where we're going to focus today. Last week I talked a little bit, maybe too much, about what's going on in the world and I tried to make that connection back to this prayer. Um, how that we can use this prayer as a template to guide us in our day-to-day lives and direct us in how we respond to the events that are taking place around us. When it comes to issues like racism, abortion, and, and other things that are going on in our world, it really shouldn't take the media to cause the church to start addressing these problems. That's kind of what my point was trying to get to. Um, when it comes to issues of morality, the church should be what the world looks to for direction. It shouldn't be the other way around. And when it is the other way around, when churches are getting their cues of morality from the world, the church is in a, a poor state at that point. So we just need to be careful as a church and make sure that we're following God's word and, and it's directing us in these areas. Now, as we, as Jesus introduces the Lord's Prayer, he actually gives us two things to avoid in our prayer life. And the first was public displays of prayer that are more about looking spiritual in front of others than it is about building a relationship with God. Now, does that mean that what we just did to start this service is wrong? Do we not pray publicly? Well, that's not what he's talking about. There's many times where it's very appropriate to pray publicly and to pray communally as a group. But what he's talking about is just when we're making sure everybody sees us praying. motive behind the prayer when we're in public of how we ought to, to treat those things. The second thing that we're supposed to avoid is vain repetition in which we hope to be heard for the quantity of our words rather than the sincerity of our words. Uh, sometimes repeating the same words over and over again. Um, some people I wouldn't know the words to it, but there's a prayer called Hail Mary. But people repeat over and over again, trying to appease God or, or gain some kind of favor with God. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying that we shouldn't be doing. And I mentioned last week, it's kind of ironic that many churches have turned these words of Jesus into vain repetition. We quote the Lord's Prayer, not thinking about what the words mean or the intention behind them. We just quote the words without any thought. And it becomes a vain repetition. Going exactly against what Jesus was, was teaching by giving it to us. When we look at the Lord's Prayer specifically, there's basically six statements or six petitions contained in that prayer. 
first three relate directly to God, and the second three relate to us and our, our needs. The first three, as they relate to God, they serve to prepare our hearts and our minds, establishing God's authority, humbling ourselves with his will before we bring our needs to him. And that's the purpose of that section of the prayer, is to prepare us, to guide our minds into a correct submission and a correct attitude towards God. Uh, as in, we shouldn't be just instantly, every time we need something or want something, going to God and just demanding his responding to, to my wants and needs. We need to prepare our hearts before we go to God with our needs and seek his direction, looking for his will, and giving him the honor that he's due. If you think about his name as was given in the Bible, I, I just went online and looked up names of God, and you can get a list of 10, 15, 20, 100, 600, any number of names that you want to, to find, you can find a list of that many names for God that are in the Bible. I wrote down just a, a handful of them. Uh, the Lord God Almighty, the Lord, sorry, the Most High God, Lord Master, Lord Jehovah, the Lord my banner, the Lord my shepherd, the Lord that heals, the Lord is there, the Lord our righteousness, the everlasting God, Jealous, the Lord will provide, the Lord is peace, the Lord of hosts, I am. This is, of course, just a small sample of the names given for God in the Bible. And if you're listening to those names, you probably notice that most of them are actually descriptions of his character. And that is how God defines himself, is by who he is, his character, defines what we call him. And so we have all these names because he contains those characteristics. And if we think about that, if we give enough thought to how the Bible describes God, the names that the Bible gives for God, it's that God that we're coming to in prayer and that Jesus is telling us to call our Father. Think of the privilege and the honor that it is to call that God, that perfect, holy, just, the creator of heaven and earth. Like you can't have enough words to describe who he is. And it's that God that we get to call our Father. The Bible describes part of our salvation as becoming adopted children of God. Romans 8.15 says, Ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That adoption into God's family, we get to God, call God our Father. John 1.12, paraphrase it, but it describes that our belief in Jesus, it's our faith in Christ, that gives us the ability to call God our Father. It's, it's that faith that 
gives us the adoption into God's family. So this is a privilege that's not to be taken lightly. And that's why Jesus combines it with this second statement, says, hallowed be thy name. We're supposed to be reminded of the name of God, and we're supposed to treat that name with reverence, even as we come to God calling him our Father. And there's a special privilege involved there as well, that we get to go directly to God as our Father. We can speak directly to him. We don't need to go to a priest or some other man to go between us and God. We have that direct line of communication that we can just, at any time that we want, speak directly to him, and he's there listening. So that is the privilege that we have of having God as our Father. I don't know if it's everybody, but I find when I quote this next section of the Lord's Prayer, I tend to make two sentences sound like they combine into one. But the verse 10 says, Thy kingdom come. Period. That's a, a complete sentence. And that thought should cause us to pause briefly and think about God's kingdom and us desiring God's kingdom to come. Second uh, Peter chapter 3 points us to this uh, in verse 11 through 14. I won't read the, the whole passage, but he's reminding us to live diligently godly lives, looking for and hasting unto the coming day of, of God. That hasting, we're trying, we're, we're anxious, we should be anxious for God to arrive and for Jesus' second coming and the entrance of that kingdom where sin is no more, where he destroys and binds Satan, sin is gone, and it's complete obedience to God at that time. We should be looking forward to that. Uh, as we're going through some people call this labor pains in our, in our world. There's lots of trouble going on. When we look at those things and we look at our Bible, we should see that there's a connection. And we have to go through some of these things before God's kingdom comes in. And so even as we're dealing with some hard times and difficult situations, that should point us Christ is coming. He's returning. And it should draw us more eagerly anticipating that return. But in the meantime, while we're here in this current world, we're supposed to seek for God's will to be done. And that is the following statement in the same verse in verse 10. That God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Realizing this, tells us something, that in heaven, God's will is done 100%. When people are in God's presence, well, there is complete obedience to God and his will. And that's what we have to look forward to, is a sinless future in God's kingdom. It just gives us that, that glimpse 
is what we can expect to experience in his kingdom. But while we're here waiting for that, we're supposed to be ambassadors to this world. We're supposed to be representing God to this world. Our lives, our values, our actions are supposed to be a display of God's character so that people can look at us and have a glimpse of what God is like. Have a glimpse of what God's standards for living actually are. The world should be looking to us, seeing God's will being done in our lives as an example of how they should and could be living. There should be a difference in our lives so that when people look at us, they start to wonder what it is that makes us different. They should, each one of us should at some point in our life have an experience of having somebody ask us why we're different. If you've never been asked that, maybe you're not different. Maybe you're not different enough for them to even notice that there's something about you. We should be able to be picked out from a, a crowd and people start to get to know us. They should know that there is something about that person. And they should wonder what it is that causes us to be like that. Maybe they shouldn't wonder. Maybe it should be obvious. <laughs> Maybe what comes out of our mouth should make it obvious. But it's Christ that makes the difference. The next phrase, verse 11 says, Give us this day our daily bread. This is where we switch from focusing on God to now we switch to us and our needs, our desires. And we have this, it almost sounds like a a command toward God, give us this day our daily bread. shouldn't think of it as a command as much as it is a request. But this idea of, of daily bread, uh, I would assume that the phrase came from back in the Old Testament in Exodus when, when Israel is being delivered out of Egypt. They're wandering the wilderness for 40 years. And each day, six days of the week, they get up in the morning and there's this stuff on the ground that was kind of like falling manna. And it's some form of bread. And that is what they lived on for 40 years. And on that sixth day, they could gather twice as much. And they could save it for the, for the next day, for the Sabbath day, when God wasn't going to send that bread. But every day, they were given that daily bread. They, their physical needs were taken care of. Um, at the end, as they're entering into the promised land, the Bible talks about their clothing and their shoes never wore out in that 40 years. Imagine, like, I spent a fair chunk of change on a pair of running shoes, and I'm lucky to get a full year out of them <laughs> before they wear out. Nice to go 40 years without having to buy a new set of shoes. But that's the experience that Israel had, and that was where this 
phrase that comes from is God's daily provision for us. We have our food each day. We have the clothing on our back and a house to live in. But we can come to God asking Him to provide those things. It's right for us to depend on God for that. I've talked about that it shouldn't be just blind faith. I'm going to sit at home and twiddle my thumbs and God's going to provide for me. It's not like that. God commands that we go out and work. But uh, talking about gardening with some people this morning, you know, we started our tomato plants inside many weeks ago. We have these nice big tomato plants. They're starting to bloom. And we finally put them in the garden this week. And now they're dead because the frost came and we didn't have them dug in the first place. So you look at that like, okay, we're doing our part. But you think about we put a seed in the ground. We water it. There's not a thing you can do to make that thing grow. That's God. We do our part. God has to complete the rest. We look at Israel and we think of the miraculous care that God gave for them in this provision of that, that food. They were just laying on the ground each morning and their clothing not laying out. It's just as much of a miracle today that the things that we do actually create enough provision that we can eat and have a house to live in and clothes on our back. So when you plant that seed in the ground, there's no guarantee that that thing's going to grow. There's no guarantee that we're going to be able to harvest something from those crops that we put in the ground. It's all God providing. So we need to trust Him. We need to come to God asking for Him to give us those things to provide. Even as we're working for it, it's still a miracle of God that we actually get those things in the end that we need. our food and clothing that we often pray for. Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. In other words, we have a tendency to think we know what we need, we know what we want, and when we go to God asking for those things, we're often misplacing our request. We're often asking for our own fulfillment. And that's not always what God's desire for us is. Often we pray for healing for people. When God might be trying to use some illness or some hardship in their life to teach them something, to draw them closer to him. And if he was to answer that prayer the way that we're asking it, his will wouldn't be done, and that person wouldn't grow closer to God through that thing. And so this says that the Holy Spirit takes what we say, corrects it, if we have our right heart, like what the Lord's Prayer is directing us to seeking God's will, and it turns that prayer and presents it toward, toward God the Father, in a way that he can answer it for our benefit. And that's the beauty of God. Um, we don't have to be right 
exactly how to pray for things. He just wants us to pray. He wants to hear our voice. He wants us to bring the things to him that we need and our problems and trials. And then he can deal with them from there and turn it into what we actually do need. The other part of our daily bread, I should have grabbed one, but in the church we get these devotional books brought to us each quarter or whatever it is that we can take home called our daily bread. And we understand that that's not a book full of food. That's a book full of spiritual food. That we spend that time each day reading God's word, thinking about what it says and how we can apply that to our lives. That's our daily bread. Jesus in, in Matthew 4 that we looked at while ago now, but it says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And then again in John chapter 6, Jesus is talking about the same sort of thing again. And in verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. We can't live just on physical food. We need spiritual food. And that spiritual food comes from the Bible and spending time in there daily. That's our daily bread. We need to consume God's word on a daily basis in order to stay spiritually strong, um, spiritually healthy. As we get to the end of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus kind of comes back to this topic of physical needs and our, our food and clothing needs. And he's telling us, don't worry about those things. He says, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. If we seek God's kingdom first, the rest of our physical needs are going to be taken care of. As long as we're doing what God is telling us we should be doing. We need to work, we need to do our part, but God will make those things productive. He will provide for us if we're trusting in him in those things. The fifth thing that, the fifth petition in that prayer comes in verse 12. This is the second thing pertaining to our needs. It says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The word debt is in reference to our sin, of course. And the idea with the word debt kind of indicates that our sin creates an obligation between us and God. There's a, and something that we owe, and it's something that we can't pay on our own. Romans 6.23 describes that debt as wages, or the wages of sin. 
our sin creates this obligation to God. And in that verse it says the wages of sin is death. The only way that we can be pardoned for that debt that we owe is through the substitutionary debt of Jesus. If we are our own death, we're that of Jesus. When we've received that forgiveness, if we understand the magnitude of the forgiveness that God has given us, when we look at ourselves compared to Scripture, we should be able to come away with that filled with so much gratitude that the next part of that sentence should be easy for us to give those that owe debts to us to give our debtors. What we've been forgiven of should cause us to find forgiving others a whole lot easier. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. Jesus talks about this same topic again of forgiving others. Matthew 18, and starting verse 21. Matthew 18, verse 21 says, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Until seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and his children, and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him, and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet, and besought him, saying, have, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison, till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came, on, came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I have pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother his trespasses. Now Jesus uses an 
example here to teach this lesson. He turns it back to money because we all understand money. And he had a servant that owed this huge debt, 10,000 talents. I don't know how much it would amount to today, but it's a lot of money. And when he simply asked for some grace in that, the master just forgives it. It's not even, I'm going to give you more time to pay or anything like that. Just forgive the debt. And that man goes out, and somebody owes him just a few bucks. And when he finds him, demands that money, and the person has the exact same response, just asking for a little bit of grace, for a little bit of time to pay that back. There's no mercy whatsoever. Cast him into prison, demanding that he gets full payment. So when the master hears what took place, he demands full payment from him. He just says he delivers him to the tormentors, demanding that full payment. What had been forgiven was now not forgiven because what and it's just it's just teaching us to look at what we've been forgiven in relation to what others have done to us. What we've done to offend God is far beyond what some other person could ever do to us. And God says, we need to be able to forgive those things. I can't fully explain how he puts this. I'm not trying to add anything to salvation, but there's definitely a connection there. And we can see the seriousness of God in this issue of we need to be willing to forgive others. And it's because of what we've been forgiven. When we understand what God has done for us, that to just give us the grace to have forgiveness for other people. And that's really what, what Jesus is getting at. He says the same thing, and we read it at the end of our passage in Matthew 6. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's a pretty serious uh, statement that Jesus is making. I wouldn't dare to try to, to work my way around that or dismiss it in any way, um, even though it doesn't directly stick with my doctrine of salvation, but there's, there's definitely something there. We need to take these things very seriously. but deliver us from evil. James 1.13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God doesn't tempt us to sin. So when we pray that lead us not into temptation, it's not like we need to convince God to not tempt us to sin. That's not what it's saying. It's that we just need to have an attitude of please protect me from these temptations. 
we need to recognize our own weaknesses, our own frailty in this area, that we are tempted to sin quite easily. More of the point of this is the second part that says, deliver us from evil. We need to be aware, there goes my, my notes, okay. <laughs> we need to be aware the devil is very real. The devil is actively pursuing each one of us. Thank you. 
not every prayer is going to follow a format like this. But there should be enough deeper prayer in our life that this outline should come into play at some point in our day when we actually just take time aside to spend with God. We should think through these things and apply them to the way that we pray, the way that we approach God each day, each morning before we start our day.
two more this time. So, 521. 521. I've got verse 1, 3, and 4. So, that's what we're going to sing. Arrows running in. 1, 3, and 4.
before we start, maybe I'll just start with a, a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, just as we are grateful to be able to come together to worship you, Lord, and sing praises to you. We just ask you for that. Thank you for the sunshine and the beautiful weather we have this morning. It's not too hot. We can sit outside and enjoy it. I just want to think of the those who are not feeling well, those that aren't able to come today.
talk a little bit, maybe too much, about what's going on in the world. And I tried to make that connection back to this prayer, um, how that we can use this prayer as a template to guide us in our day-to-day lives and direct us in how we respond to the events that are taking place around us. When it comes to issues like racism, abortion, and, and other things that are going on in our world, it really shouldn't take the media to cause the church to start addressing these problems. That's kind of what my point was trying to get to. Um, when it comes to issues of morality, the church should be what the world looks to for direction. It shouldn't be the other way around. And when it is the other way around, when churches are getting their cues of morality from the world, the church is in a, a poor state at that point. So we just need to be careful as a church and make sure that we're following God's word and, and it's directing us in these areas. Now, as we, as Jesus introduces the Lord's Prayer, he actually gives us two things to avoid in our prayer life. And the first was public displays of prayer that are more about looking spiritual in front of others than it is about building a relationship with God. Now, does that mean that what we just did to start this service is wrong? Do we not pray publicly? Well, that's not what he's talking about. There's many times where it's very appropriate to pray publicly and to pray communally as a group. But what he's talking about is just when we're making sure everybody sees us praying. And so it's our attitude and the motive behind the prayer when we're in public of how we ought to, to treat those things. The second thing that we're supposed to avoid is vain repetition, in which we hope to be heard for the quantity of our words rather than the sincerity of our words. Uh, sometimes repeating the same words over and over again. Um, some people, I wouldn't know the words for it, but there's a prayer called Hail Mary. But people repeat over and over again trying to appease God or, or gain some kind of favor with God. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying that we shouldn't be doing. And I mentioned last week, it's kind of ironic that many churches have turned these words of Jesus into vain repetition. We quote the Lord's Prayer, not thinking about what the words mean or the intention behind them. We just quote the words without any thought. And it becomes a vain repetition going exactly against what Jesus was, was teaching by giving it to us. When we look at the Lord's Prayer specifically, there's basically six statements or six petitions contained in that prayer. The first three relate directly to God, and the second three relate to us and our, our needs. prepare our hearts and our minds, establishing God's authority 
humbling ourselves with his will before we bring our need to him. And that's the purpose of that section of the prayer is to prepare us to guide our minds into a correct submission and a correct attitude towards God. Uh, as in, we shouldn't be just instantly, every time we need something or want something, going to God and just demanding Him responding to, to my wants and needs. We need to prepare our hearts before we go to God with our needs and seek His direction, looking for His will, and giving Him the honor that He's due. If you think about His name as He was given in the Bible, I just went online and looked up names of God, and you can get a list of 10, 15, 20, 100, 600, <laughs> any number of names that you want to, to find, you can find a list of that many names for God that in the Bible. I wrote down just a, a handful of them. Um, the Lord God Almighty, the Lord, sorry, the Most High God, Lord Master, Lord Jehovah, the Lord my banner. The Lord my shepherd. The Lord that heals. The Lord is there. The Lord our righteousness. The everlasting God. Jealous. The Lord will provide. The Lord is peace. The Lord of hosts. I am. This is, of course, just a small sample of the names given for God in the Bible. And if you're listening to those names, you've probably noticed that most of them are actually descriptions of his character. And that is how God defines himself, is by who he is. His character defines what we call him. And so he has all these names because he contains those characteristics. And if we think about that, if we give enough thought to how the Bible describes God, the names that the Bible gives for God, that God that we're coming to in prayer and that Jesus is telling us to call our Father. Think of the privilege and the honor that it is to call that God, that perfect, holy, just, the creator of heaven and earth. Yeah, you can't have enough words to describe who he is. And it's that God that we get to call our Father. The Bible describes part of our salvation as becoming adopted children of God. Romans 8.15 says, Ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That adoption into God's family, we get to God, call God our Father. John 1.12 paraphrase it, but it describes this, our belief in Jesus, it's our faith in Christ that gives us the ability to call God our Father. It's, it's that faith that gives us the adoption into God's family. So this is a privilege that's not to be taken lightly. And that's why Jesus combines it with the second statement, it says, hallowed be thy name. We're supposed to be reminded of the name of God, and we're supposed to treat that name with reverence 
Justin Matthews, come to God calling him as father. And there's a special privilege involved there as well, that we get to go directly to God as our father. We can speak directly to him. We don't need to go to a priest or some other man to go between us and God. We have that direct line of communication that we can just at any time that we want speak directly to him and he's there listening. So that is the privilege that we have of having God as our father. I don't know if it's everybody but I find when I quote this next section of the Lord's Prayer I tend to make two sentences sound like they combine into one but the verse 10 says thy kingdom come period that's a a complete sentence and that thought should cause us to pause briefly and think about God's kingdom and us desiring God's kingdom to come Second uh, Peter chapter three points us to this uh, in verse eleven through fourteen. I won't read the, the whole passage, but he's reminding us to live diligently, godly lives, looking for and hasting unto the coming day of, of God. That hasting, we're trying, we're we're anxious. We should be anxious for God to arrive for Jesus' second coming and the entrance of that kingdom where sin is no more. Where he destroys and binds Satan. Sin is gone and it's complete obedience to God at that time. We should be looking forward to that. Uh, As we're going through some people call this labor pains in in our world, there's lots of trouble going on. When we look at those things and we look at our Bible, we should see that there's a connection. And we have to go through some of these things before God's kingdom comes in. And so even as we're dealing with some hard times and difficult situations, that should point us that Christ is coming. He's returning. And it should draw us more eagerly anticipating that return. But in the meantime, while we're here in this current world, we're supposed to seek for God's will to be done. And that is the following statement in the same verse, in verse 10. That God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Realizing that this description tells us something. That in heaven, God's will is done 100%. When people are in God's presence, there is complete obedience to God and His will. And that's what we have to look forward to, is a sinless future in God's kingdom. It just gives us that that glimpse into what we can expect to experience in His kingdom. But while we're here waiting for that, we're supposed to be ambassadors to this world. We're supposed to be representing God to this world. Our lives, our values, our actions are supposed to be a dis- 
display of God's character so that people can look at us and have a glimpse of what God is like. Have a glimpse of what God's standards for living actually are. The world should be looking to us, seeing God's will being done in our lives as an example of how they should and could be living. There should be a difference in our lives so that when people look at us, they start to wonder what it is that makes us different. They should, each one of us should at some point in our life have an experience of having somebody ask us why we're different. If you've never been asked that, maybe you're not different. Maybe you're not different enough for them to even notice that there's something about you. We should be able to be picked out from a, a crowd when people start to get to know us. They should know that there is something about that person. And they should wonder what it is that causes us to be like that. Maybe they shouldn't wonder. Maybe it should be obvious. <laughs> Maybe what comes out of our mouth should make it obvious that it's Christ that makes the difference. The next phrase, verse 11 says, Give us this day our daily bread. This is where we switch from focusing on God, to now we switch to us and our needs, our desires. And we have this, it almost sounds like a, a command towards God, give us this day our daily bread. shouldn't think of it as a command as much as it is a request. But those things. 
great for us to depend on God for that. I've talked about that it shouldn't be just blind faith. I'm going to sit at home and twiddle my thumbs and God's going to provide for me. It's not like that. God commands that we go out and work. But uh, talking about gardening with some people this morning, you know, we started our tomato plants inside many weeks ago. We have these nice big tomato plants. They're starting to bloom. And we finally put them in the garden this week. And now they're dead because the frost came. We didn't have them shoved in the first place. So you look at that, like, okay, we're doing our part. But you think about, we put a seed in the ground. We water it. There's not a thing you can do to make that thing grow. That's God. We do our part. God has to complete the rest. We look at Israel and we think of the miraculous care that God gave for them in this provision of that, that food. They were just laying on the ground each morning and their clothing not wearing out. It's just as much of a miracle today that the things that we do actually create enough provision that we can eat and have a house to live in and clothes on our back. So when you plant that seed in the ground, there's no guarantee that that thing is going to grow. There's no guarantee that we're going to be able to harvest something from those crops that we put in the ground. It's all God providing. So we need to trust Him. We need to come to God asking for Him to give us those things to provide. Even as we're working for it, it's still a miracle of God that we actually get those things in the end that we need. not just our food and clothing that we often pray for. Romans 8, 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. In other words, we have a tendency to think we know what we need, we know what we want. And when we go to God asking for those things, we're often misplacing our request. We're often asking for our own fulfillment. And that's not always what God's desire for us is. Often we pray for healing for people. When God might be trying to use some illness or some hardship in their life, teach them something, to draw them closer to him. And if he was to answer that prayer the way that we're asking it, his will wouldn't be done, and that person wouldn't grow closer to God through that thing. And so this says that the Holy Spirit takes what we say, corrects it, if we have our right heart, like what the Lord's Prayer is directing us to seeking God's will, and it turns that prayer and presents it towards Toward God the Father in a way that He can answer it for our benefit. And that's the beauty of God. Um, we don't have to be right and know exactly how to pray for things. He just wants us to pray. He wants to hear our voice. He wants us to bring the things to Him that we need and our problems and trials. And then He can deal with them from there and turn it into what. We actually do need. 
the church, we get these devotional books brought to us each quarter or whatever it is that we can take home called our daily bread. And we understand that that's not a book full of food. That's a book full of spiritual food. That we spend that time each day reading God's word, thinking about what it says and how we can apply that to our lives. That's our daily bread. Jesus in in Matthew 4 that we looked at a while ago now, but it says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And then again in John chapter 6, Jesus is talking about the same sort of thing again. And in verse 48 he says, I am the bread of life. We can't live just on physical food. We need spiritual food. And that spiritual food comes from the Bible and spending time in there daily. It's our daily bread. We need to consume God's word on a daily basis in order to stay spiritually strong, um, spiritually healthy. As we get to the end of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus kind of comes back to this topic of physical needs and our, our food and clothing needs. And he's telling us, don't worry about those things. He says, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. If we seek God's kingdom first, the rest of our physical needs are going to be taken care of. As long as we're doing what God is telling us we should be doing. We need to work, we need to do our part, but God will make those things productive. He will provide for us if we're trusting in him in those things. The fifth thing that the fifth petition in that prayer comes in verse 12. This is the second thing pertaining to our needs. It says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The word debt is in reference to our sin, of course. And the idea with the word debt kind of indicates that our sin creates an obligation between us and God. There's a and something that we owe, and it's something that we can't pay on our own. Romans 6.23 describes that debt as wages. Our as the wages of sin. Our sin creates this obligation to God. And in that verse it says the wages of sin is death. The only way that we can be pardoned for that debt that we owe is through the substitutionary debt of Jesus. It's either our own death or that of Jesus. When we've received that forgiveness, 
understand the magnitude of the forgiveness that God has given us, when we look at ourselves compared to Scripture, we should be able to come away with that filled with so much gratitude that the next part of that sentence should be easy for us to give those that owe debts to us, to give our debtors. What we've been forgiven of should cause us to find forgiving others a whole lot easier. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 18, Jesus talks about this same topic again of forgiving others. Matthew 18 and starting verse 21. Matthew 18, verse 21 says, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Until seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and his children, and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him, and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet, and besought him, saying, Have, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison, till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came, un came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I have pity on thee? And his lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every one his brother his trespasses. Now Jesus uses an example here to teach this lesson. He turns it back to money, because we all understand money. And we have a servant that owes this huge debt, 10,000 talents. I don't know how much this would amount to today, but it's a lot of money. And when he simply asks for some grace in that, the master just forgives it. Not even, I'm going to give you more time to pay or anything like that. He just forgives the debt. And that man goes out, and somebody owes him 
just a few bucks, and then he finds and demands that money, and the person has the exact same response, just asking for a little bit of grace, a little bit of time to pay that back. No mercy whatsoever. Cast him into prison, demanding that he gets full payment. So when the master hears what took place, he demands full payment from him. He says, it just says he delivers him to the tormentors, demanding that full payment. What had been forgiven was now not forgiven because what and it's just it's just teaching us to look at what we've been forgiven in relation to what others have done to us. What we've done to offend God is far beyond what some other person could ever do to us. And God says, we need to be able to forgive those things. I can't fully explain how he puts this. And I'm not trying to add anything to salvation, but there's definitely a connection there. And we can see the seriousness of God in this issue of we need to be willing to forgive others. And it's because of what we've been forgiven. When we understand what God has done for us, that should just give us the grace to have forgiveness for other people. And that's really what, what Jesus is getting at. He says the same thing, and we read it at the end of our passage in Matthew 6. So if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's a pretty serious uh, statement that Jesus is making. I wouldn't dare to try to, to work my way around that or dismiss it in any way, um, even though it doesn't directly fit with my doctrine of salvation, but there's, there's definitely something there. We need to take these things very seriously. but deliver us from evil. James 1.13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God doesn't tempt us to sin. So when we pray that lead us not into temptation, it's not like we need to convince God to not tempt us to sin. That's not what it's saying. It's like we just need to have an attitude of please protect me from these temptations. We need to recognize our own weaknesses, our own frailty in this area, that we are tempted to sin quite easily. There's more the point of this is the second part that says Deliver us from evil. We need to be aware. There goes my, my mouth. That's okay. <laughs> we need to be aware. The devil is very real. The devil is actively pursuing each one of us 
understand that so that we can possibly resist the temptations that he's going to send our way. Ephesians 6.12 says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers in the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. The point in this is that we should never think that we can't be tempted or that we're strong enough to not fall. The saying that the world has cometh before the fall, as soon as we think that we can withstand temptation, as soon as we think that we can handle being exposed to the things that we used to be tempted to do, that's when we're ready to fall. That's when we're not ready to face those things and we think that we can handle it. Our prayer should be that God would guard us from Satan and his attempt to make us fall. I found this prayer online I saw seen it ages ago. I just searched and find it. It says, Dear Lord, so far I've done all right. I haven't gossiped. I haven't lost my temper. haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm going to need a lot more help. And that is a good way to start our day, realizing how frail we are in this area of being tempted. Sin is knocking at our door at every moment of the day, just in the way we respond to the slightest thing that goes wrong. Um, it's so easy to let a foul word come out of your mouth, or to have a bad attitude towards another person, and so many other things, of course. When we pray, not every prayer is going to contain all these elements that we talked about through the Lord's Prayer, but this is an outline, it's, a, as a, it's like a guide for prayer of how we should have our attitude and our, our motives as we pray. not so much do you follow this format, but 
You just pray. How much time do you spend in prayer each day? I tell you, God wants to hear your voice. Talk to him. He's listening. He is your father. He wants to hear from you. Let's pray as we close. Father, I'm just thankful that we can call you our father. We recognize who you are and what that means to us, the privilege that we have. Let's pray that we would consider that as we come to you and present our needs to you and as we face challenges through each day, Lord, we just pray that you would guide us with the right attitude, depending on you for our needs. Lord, just uh, help us to go closer to you through this and Come back and Emily, for another.